0: Welcome to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, the most-listened-to internet radio show in the nonprofit sector, dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern-day fundraising success, and practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also, a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to the use of social media and how to make your nonprofit green. Guests on the Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share tips and trade secrets for nonprofit management and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on Radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And
2: welcome here to our holiday version of The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you for joining us today. This is our final show for 2014. Uh, It's been a terrific year, uh, the largest year uh, in the history of The Nonprofit Coach, so thank you to all of our Very loyal listeners. And we will not disappoint you with our final show. As you know, our tradition here on The Nonprofit Coach is to always end our year uh, with the biggest show of the year. And, of course, we could have no one other than Kay Sprinkle Grace as our guest for the biggest show of the year. And she's going to be sharing with you today tips on how you can make 2015 the most successful for your organization yet. As always, here on The Nonprofit Coach, it is possible for you to call in and ask questions of our Page 2 expert by dialing 347-324-3080. Uh, you can also join us over in the chat room. You can ask questions there. Uh, or if you're super shy and still want to ask a question, you can email those questions in today at tedhart at tedhart.com. We always start off with Page 1 news. <laughs> We're going to jump right into it today because we've got such a big show, we want to make as much time available uh, for K Sprinkle Grace today, so we're going to jump right in uh, to page one news with the CFRE Minute, Uh, George Hamilton, who is with Marketing and Membership, he's the manager at CFRE, uh, is here with us for a year-end wrap-up of all the important news for CFRE. Welcome back here to the Nonprofit Coach, George Hamilton.
3: Thanks very much, Ted. Great to be here. Hey, George. Um, Happy holidays. How's everything over at CFRE? Well, things are going great. Um, I actually have two very exciting announcements to share with your listeners today um, about new partnerships that CFRE International has formed um, both to extend uh, fundraising best practices in Europe as well as to enhance the, uh, the end user experience related to taking that initial CFRE examination. Um, So the first one I want to talk to you you about um, is a new partnership that we formed with the European Fundraising Association, and that's going to really extend best practices um, in fundraising throughout Europe through collaboration of CFRE's credentialing program and EFA's professional education program. Uh, EFA provides... A qualification framework for their member associations to develop professional training. So, EFA's membership is made up of other European fundraising associations, um, and EFA provides this framework by which they can have their their trainings um, certified. Under this partnership, those those trainings will now once be once being certified will now count towards CFA CFAE application requirements, and the partnership is also going to really allow. Um, CFRE to leverage that relationship with IFA in terms of helping to continue to differentiate the value of professional certification within fundraising from other certificates and educational degrees that are offered in Europe. Um, So it's really going to help us position the CFRE credential more effectively in Europe as well um, as give folks over there who are fundraisers the opportunity to have education that is, you know, pre-approved as part of as qualifying for the CFRE application requirements.
2: And when um, does, does that partnership uh, um start serving uh fundraisers uh professionals in Europe?
3: Well, the the exact specifics of how it's going to roll out are still being developed, but I in, in the new year you're going to start seeing um you know things on IFA's website that'll that will be saying you know, to folks that that uh submit their education training and training programs for, for certification through EFA that's that now going to count for CFRE. Um you know, there's gonna be increased communication from EFA to their members um around the C F R E credential and it, its meaning and value. Um and also, you know, our marketing materials um in in Europe that run in Europe will will now include the indication that we are partnered with EFA. So that's well, all going to start. This is an start.
2: exciting um, expansion of your global uh, platform and certainly bringing forward uh, some of the things that uh, you've discussed before uh, about taking the knowledge base uh, around
3: the world. Yes, indeed. Indeed. We're very we're very excited about it. Um, the second exciting partnership is really going to enhance the end user experience in terms of actually going and taking that initial certification exam, um We're excited to announce that starting um, with the first test window of 2015, CFRE International is now uh, partnered with Pearson VUE, who is really the leader in computer-based testing um, around the world. Um, And what what we're going to be able to offer candidates now through this new partnership with Pearson VUE is, first and foremost, a hugely expanded number of test site options, you know, right now for candidates in New Zealand there is only one testing center. Um you know, Pearson View offers I think twelve. It's either eight or twelve. Um, you know, so there's gonna be a massive expansion in terms of the number of places that people can go and sit for the C F R E exam around the world, not you know as well in the US as well as abroad. Um and that's really going to alleviate some some issues that folks had, had been experiencing in terms of the limited number of sites that were available and the you know difficulties that some people had in terms of being able to schedule um their test within the test window um at the sites that were convenient to them so that's going to be a big improvement um there's also going to be easier test registration um so there won't won't be quite as won't be quite as confusing um, for fo- for some folks to when they go to register for the test itself, um, and also we're excited that it's, the relationship with Pearson Vue is really going to uh, allow us to enhance the uh, the score reporting that folks get um, when they complete the exam. So those, those are three major improvements in terms of the testing experience that the candidates for the CFRE can expect um, as a result of this new partnership with Pearson Vue, um, and again that's going to go live. With the first testing window of 2015, so well that's true. well for all of my right listeners.
2: Away. I can endorse the Pearson the move to Pearson. I've just had a personal experience over the last year uh, with the the Pearson testing uh, service. I just completed the Chartered Advisor in Philanthropy uh, program through the American College for Financial Services, and I am now a Chartered Advisor in Philanthropy. So I'm I'm proud to share that with everyone. Um, but that they use the Pearson testing service, and I have to tell you it's uh terrific, easy to use uh great to have so many locations uh that you can go and receive the training very very professional uh so I think that this again is a further enhancement of the platform and the ability for uh those that are taking uh the c f r e exam to be able to access that
3: that That's great, and I really appreciate your personal endorsement and uh, sharing your experiences with your listeners. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely.
2: So, George, uh, thank you so much, and happy holidays to all of our friends over at CFRE. We look forward to uh, having you back here with the CFRE Minute here on the Nonprofit Coach when we come back from our holiday hiatus in uh, early 2015. So you make sure you have a wonderful holiday. Take care.
3: Okay, great. Thanks. You too, Chad. You
2: bet. That was George Hamilton over at CFRE providing us with – The CFRE minute. The next thing I want to share with you here on the Nonprofit Coach comes to us from Business to Community, the website business2community.com, and they share holiday fundraising tips for nonprofits. I thought I would share this with you because this is based on a survey from Charity Navigator. Uh, this shows that charities raise 41% of their annual contributions in the last six weeks of the year, six weeks of the year. Uh, so it is we are in that critical period, uh, which, of course, having K Sprinkle Grace with us today uh, to help us sort all this out and point you in the direction of how to make 2015 very, very successful. So tip one, number one is to share your stories. Ask people you helped to share their stories. Create a blog post or video. Uh, that is authentic and shares information about the great work that you are doing. Um, Email doesn't necessarily require a push for donations. Try different call to action. Uh, Hear from others, you can help now uh, is one of the approaches that they suggest. Next is make the holidays count. There's a bunch of holidays between now and January that you'll want to mark on your calendars, Um, obviously here at year-end, but going all the way through to Martin Luther King holiday, um, and make sure that you're making use of that. Um, Planning for next year, remember Giving Tuesday just took place on December 2nd. It was the largest Giving Tuesday ever, uh, and CAF America uh, and CAF Canada, two organizations that I have the pleasure of serving as CEO and president, respectively. Uh, we're both sponsors of Giving Tuesday and feel that that is an important call to action and start of the giving season, and that was just last week, which we celebrated here on The Nonprofit Coach with leadership from uh, Charity Navigator here on The Nonprofit Coach. Tip number four is be transparent. Tell your audiences exactly how their donations will be used. Uh, the more transparent that you are, Uh, This is a topic that Kay and I have discussed many times here on this show. Uh, The better off your organization will be, and the more likely it is that you'll be authentic uh, with your supporters. Tip number five is to host and promote events. Consider planning a few events uh, during this time of year and into the early next year. Uh, Planning events can take a lot of time, so getting an early start. So now thinking about what you're going to be doing uh, in 2015 is not too early. Tip number six is plan an easy giveaway on social media. Engage your audience by offering a holiday-themed giveaway on social media to draw more attention, and that could be through a partnership with a local business uh, to give away 20% off uh, purchases or some way of drawing attention to the giving season and your organization. Create a gift uh, catalog. People love to buy things around the holidays to consider turning your services into a gift catalog. Create an equivalent of an online flyer to encourage shoppers uh, to make a donation, share that in social media. Uh, and to um, share that with friends and family. And tip number eight, it just cannot be more specific than to say be specific. Asking for donations is fine, but sometimes people want to buy an actual item or give to an organization in a very granular and authentic way. So if you have a specific need, it's okay to say so, and how you communicate that matters. Uh, So with that, those are some terrific tips from business to community. We're going to head right on over Uh, to page two and the wonderful Kay Sprinkle Grace. We have so many loyal listeners here on The Nonprofit Coach. Of course, Kay Sprinkle Grace is a familiar voice here on The Nonprofit Coach uh, because she wraps up every year since we started The Nonprofit Coach and we are in our fourth looking towards our fifth year here on The Nonprofit Coach. But for those of you who may be new listeners uh, to this particular uh, podcast of The Nonprofit Coach, Kay Sprinkle Grace is one of the foremost thought leaders in the nonprofit sector not only here in the United States but around the world. She understands the challenges of 21st century philanthropy as well as its opportunities and brings her experience from working with countless nonprofit organizations to bear on the current issues affecting donor development, fundraising, outreach, message strategy, and volunteerism. Truly a Renaissance woman, someone who has... Work in so many different capacities she 's a frequent speaker at the Association of Fundraising professionals, regional, national, international uh, i can 't tell you how many times I have been traveling someplace I run into K Sprinkle Grace because every great conference has Kate Sprinkle Grace booked with them, and she is here today. Welcome back here to the nonprofit coach, K Sprinkle Grace. Thank you,
1: Ted and I was so fascinated with George's um, presentation. I am in Indianapolis, which is not my home base. Uh, My home base is San Francisco. But yesterday was a faculty meeting of the fundraising school, with which I don't actively teach anymore, but I am still on faculty. And Andrew Watt was um, our special guest, because Tim Seiler, who is retiring after 20 years as head of the fundraising school, was honored last evening, uh, not only to with his retirement and his new position as the Rosso um teacher of, of fundraising at the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. But he also, uh, in a surprise to him and almost everybody there, was awarded the Rosso Medal for Lifelong uh service uh in ethical fundraising, which I was awarded last year and I know what an incredible joy that is. But here is the thing that got me really excited about what I had already planned to talk about uh, today with our wonderful audience. And we talked yesterday because we were focusing on the students who come to the fundraising school, and we were talking so much about how so much of what we do, even though we're called fundraisers, that so much of what we do is measured by because of that is measured by money and yet so much of what we do is so much more than raising money that it leads to our feelings of being torn between time for relationship building and stewardship and community building and as Andrew Watt said about that, the critical function us engagement of our donors in the community and educating people about philanthropy because Eve from uh, CFRE was there and we were talking about the education component. Now, I personally rue the day that we were ever called just simply fundraisers because we do so much more. But we aren't apt to change that. And so how can we live with it and be more professional and successful than ever when we know that our plates are very, very full. So here's what I want to share with all of you today. I think to ensure a 2015 that is successful, and after all, we are riding high. 335 billion given in 2013, and we know that 2014 numbers are going to be extraordinary. We saw reports yesterday showing the growth in very, very large gifts, but the rise in philanthropy. And certainly, Ted, as you've already mentioned, Giving Tuesday was astronomically bigger than it was the year before. And that is something that the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy is really taking a look at because they are, of course, involved with that. So what I really thought about was that if we want a really good year next year, not only raising money, but truly advancing the principles, the power, the joy of philanthropy. We all reflected on Hank Rosso's um, early statement that fundraising is the gentle art of teaching the joy of giving. But that joy is so much more. And that's what we need, I think, to focus on in order not to succumb to frustration, to... um, a feeling of burnout. We've all read uh, Underdeveloped, uh, the Compass of Point study about people in development and what happens. So this is what I decided to tackle. I felt that it would be good for us to pause in this time of beauty and hope and look at ourselves and how can we be girded for really the fullness of the work that we must do because our success must be more than the money we raise. We, after all, are dream brokers. We're catalysts for change. Indeed, we are change agents. But to do well and to do good, we have to stay well. So we who are in the business of encouraging others to give are givers ourselves. Our time, our patience, our strategies, our professionalism, our enthusiasm. But we don't want to be overdrawn from our own bank account, our own feeling of having enough to give to others. Now stress is inevitable. But how can we manage it so that our holidays are indeed, as the song says, merry and bright, and that those with whom we are working on year end gifts with, so our twenty fifteen is merry and bright, are not confronted with impatience, crankiness, or frustration in us. I attended a lecture at Stanford from a Stanford professor by the name of Ferdow debar who is an a psychoneuroimmunologist in the medical school. Now that the combination of the name and the job description are enough to tangle my tongue this morning. But what the gift that he gave me that I want to give to all of you in this season of giving is that short term stress, believe it or not, is actually good for us. And it's it builds our immune system. So when you're readying yourself to make an ask or to meet a deadline because, oh my gosh, that foundation has said they've got to have the work in by December 15th, the report in, in order to renew your gift next year, and you are overloaded and swamped, that stress you feel is good. But he says that not only that, our immune system, and he uses this wonderful image, he says our immune system sits in our bodies like an embarrassment. When we go through short-term stress, when we have to fire up to make that ass, to get that report done, to go in and talk to our boss about something and we feel that, <laughs> that feeling inside, he says our immune system wakes up, gets out of the barracks, goes onto the boulevard, and marches to the battlefield. Which I think is absolutely a fabulous image and he says, unless we are, unless we end up having the stress take over and become chronic, and any of you, by the way, who are feeling chronic stress, part of your New Year's resolutions ought to be to take a look at it and say, what is causing it? Can I fix it? And if I can't, what do I need to do about it in order to feel better? But the short-term stress is what makes us better public speakers, better actors, better in negotiations, and better in mani- managing the many deadlines of this profession that we love. So his talk, he went because he's a professor, he went all the way back to 2600 B.C. and quoted a great Chinese philosopher, Nei Ching, which, who said, worry and imagination can upset the functioning of the spleen, And then he quoted an ancient Indian um, physician who said the mind's error is the deepest factor for causing disease. So what DeBar says in his psychoneuroimmunology and mind-body program, he says, oh, and if you're beginning to get worried, I'm not going to woo-woo on you here. This is not a bunch of woo-woo. This is probably the most exciting thing about what I learned, and it's helped me a great deal. Because what I learned, was that the qualities of our work, those of us who are fortunate enough to serve in the philanthropic sector, are exactly what Dr. DeVar believes makes short-term stress manageable and healthy. Here's his premise. Stress need not kill us. It can actually help us survive. Why are we in our profession suited to harness our stress? to have the best year ever in 2015? Well, here's what he says. He said, and this is the power pack, this is the power pack, that people who cope best with stress harness these psychosocial behaviors. The first one is gratitude. Well, my goodness. The second is about compassion. The third is authenticity, and the fourth is appraisal. Self, work, and others. So let's take a look at each of those. We, our profession, is about gratitude and compassion, right? Each day we should wake up, particularly at this time of great giving, and think, how many people can I thank today? Because that sense of gratitude is, he said, an immense healer of stress. That when we can look at someone or something and say, I am so grateful for you, he said it is the most positive thing we can do. The second one, compassion, oh my goodness, we are all about compassion. If you're with an agency that is working with the hungry or the homeless or people with chronic or critical illnesses, of course, the compassion seems obvious, but I believe that we have compassion for people who give to us in myriad of ways and that our compassion for them, for our donors, for others, makes us feel, again, very good inside, but more than that, it makes them feel good. And that fellow staff member who maybe has been going through a tough time, with a parent or a spouse who is ill or suffering in another way, when we show our compassion and our gratitude, we're not only helping them, but Dr. DeBar says, we're really helping ourselves. And authenticity. Boy, did I grab onto that one in this class. What is the biggest motivator globally for giving? It is trust. People have to trust us. And Ted mentioned at the beginning of this about transparency. Authenticity is that quality, he says, that helps us again restore ourselves when we are experiencing short-term stress. When we go from short-term stress, and think of it like a cone on the horizon, a cone on the horizon, but we go up and then we come down, and then there's the flat place in between we get to the next cone, the next deadline, the next board member who calls us and says, we've got an opportunity that we need to move on really, really fast. Can you come over to my office now and I want to talk to you about it? Yes, I can. But we're going to get a cone bump of stress. He says that in between those cones of stress, that if we are experiencing, if we are reflecting gratitude, compassion, and authenticity, and that authenticity is the basic ingredient of trust, which is the, soft, the strongest motivator of giving everywhere in the world. And that trust, that authenticity, that honesty, the whole premise around ethics in our profession is an extraordinary. This is an extraordinary piece of teaching on his part in terms of my understanding how I am able to manage the stress in my life. And I, like you, have stress in my life. And then the last one, which was appraisal. And the appraisal, of course, is the the constant appraisal of our work, the transparency, the analysis, and don't forget self-appraisal. When you walk out of a meeting, or when you file a report, or when you talk with a donor on the phone, what could I have done better? What did I do really well? And he says that, you know, we le- need to le- learn to be easier on ourselves and easy on others. But he says you have to keep your standards. So these things I just wanted to share with you in the context of the fact that because we've been doing so well in the philanthropic s- sector, the expectation is we will continue to do better. And we know that donors are giving more. We know that volunteering is up. But what we also understand about the expectations in our profession is that we have to continue lifting that. Many of you are understaffed. And if you want to avoid chronic stress, you have to figure out how to take the reserves that you experience in between the bumps of good stress. And during those times, when you are experiencing gratitude, compassion, authenticity, appraisal, take that appraisal factor and say, how could we add a staff person? Could we get a a capacity-building grant, which many foundations are now beginning to give again? Because what we want to do is avoid this chronic stress. And he gave some Stunning statistics about chronic stress. Chronic stress is stress that lasts for months and years. And he said that forty three percent of adults experience chronic stress. Now, are you ready for this? that seventy five to ninety percent of doctor visits are stress related. This is a guy who is in the medical school. he is a physician. And he is a clinician in the cancer treatment program because they are looking at the links between um, stress and cancer and other diseases. He says that the the cost of acute chronic stress is huge. Not only the loss of immunity, but loss of motivation, creativity, efficiency, productivity. We age faster. Uh, We're more susceptible to disease. We have anxiety, fear, and depression. That's not a menu that I'd like to choose from. And if this describes you, I think that you need to focus on 2015 success by finding a way to dispense with this. And dare I say, maybe even a new job. Because we are not good to our employers, to our communities, to our donors if we are not able to really just dive in to what we really like to do and what we know people want to do. And our job is, yes, to ensure the success with others, working with others, partnering, and getting that big idea, that big dream that I've talked with some of you about before. But we can't do it if we are so burdened by the stress that we feel, we have expectations on us as a profession that a lot of people, if you've read, as I say, underdeveloped or the earlier study that Compass Point did about executive directors, if you've read that, you know that the expectations of us are often unrealistic. And in order to keep the wind in our sails, We need to take this time between the stress bumps and say, what can we do that is constructive? What can we do to really solve these problems? And how can we make sure that success is something we experience? Because success is part of the whole antidote. Because he also says that in addition to eating well and sleeping, and I don't know if you all saw John Hoffman on MSNBC yesterday, but John Hoffman heads up a Healthy America. And he says if we're not getting seven hours of sleep a night, we're really not functioning. And um, I don't know about you, but I know I feel a lot better when I get seven hours of sleep. Dr. DeBar says you may not need seven, you may need eight, you may need 12, you may need three, but find out what you need. But he also says, and here is another gift I'd like to give to you, and again, it was a great reminder to me, is that we need a creative outlet in our life. And he said he doesn't care if you meditate or levitate or whether you do photography, which is what I do, or whether you write, which is what I do, or whether you dance or sing or do yoga, but you need to do something other than your work. And I will tell you, I mean, I work, as Ted has said, I work with hundreds of organizations uh, over the last few years, and I don't know when I have met more stressed people. They were stressed during the recession because it was so tough, and and the messages were so negative, and it was so hard. And now we're stressed because the opportunities are just blooming all around us. And how do we have the time, the energy, and everything to to really take, take that opportunity and make sure that we're not just measured by the money we raise, that we're measured by the relationships we develop, by the people who feel better because we're in their lives, and the people who love our institutions because we have been the bridge for them from a place that they were to a place that they wanted to come to. All of this, these are also the measures. And I had a wonderful talk with Carla Williams, a good friend of Ted's and mine, with Carla last evening about how we must get into other measures. There's a little saying made up of two-letter words that is, if it is to be, it is up to me. And what I've been talking about today Is really up to you and before I turn this back to Ted and have some dialogue with him which he always enjoys and I always do too um, I just would like to say that gratitude compassion authenticity and appraisal aren't we fortunate to have those tools for managing our stress as part of our profession we don't have to add them on we're not making widgets and then we have to go out and say oh how could I be grateful It's every day. And I would just like to close off the formal part of this with a few lines from a Mary Oliver poem that to me speaks to how we can be even more successful in 2015 personally and professionally. There was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life, You could save. What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life, Ted? Over to you.
2: Well, as as usual, and this is this is why you are booked so often as such an eloquent speaker. You always bring you know profound ideas, Uh, and I think in this regard, you know, being kind to yourself, being true to yourself. Uh, being transparent to yourself are all very uh important themes, and I think you know the the flip side of this I'd like to ask you to to uh, reference on is you know turning it inward and being good to yourself and and staying strong and staying you know mentally alert of course are, are all really good coping skills, but oftentimes the stress doesn't come just from the work uh but comes from you know, uh, board of directors that are not engaged or knowledgeable, or um, presidents or CEOs that don't understand uh, how fundraising is done. You started off today by, you know, talking about you know the need to put an emphasis on relationships and not just the dollars being raised. Uh, but I think that for a professional, that <laughs> is uh, a natural approach. But the atmosphere or the environment in which the fundraising is done, um, for many, um, is not as conducive to that professional approach.
1: That's right, and i I believe, I believe, and particularly after yesterday's day long experience and listening to really profound people who are like you, Ted, and and like others who are really out there up close to this profession is that we are in a time of great change. And I know you have heard me uh, talk about this, this thing because I believe we're at a crossroads. I really honestly believe that our profession is at a crossroads. I think we are, we, I, we have our choice. We can either have a renaissance where we take everything that is good and wonderful about our profession, the gratitude, the compassion, the authenticity, the appraisal, the relationships, all of those, and we grow those into the next generation of philanthropy. Or we're going to have a revolution from the outside. And I recently read um, a piece, a very thoughtful piece, by um, the woman who runs the community relations uh, division at Sam's Club. And it was basically a prescription, a recipe, for how corporations... Um, can take more and more of a position in terms of being um, social activists and community relations people in their communities. But Ted, what it read like was what we should be doing. It was like a step-by-step-by-step-by-step of what we should be doing. And nowhere in there did it offer like the partnership with us. So what I fear is that because we have become a very stressed model, I fear that, as you well know, and everybody does, when you put too much stress on something, it breaks. And what concerns me is that we're losing really good people who are just saying, I'm out of here. I'm going to go do something else. Yeah. And I, I absolutely I absolutely agree with you. I, way, I think Ted. that
2: this renaissance that you speak of, this crossroads uh, and I and I think you know what CFRE is doing and and, and other professional certifications and drawing true professionals that, that are making a commitment, I, I think it comes down to something that we've discussed almost every year that you've been on the show, uh, and that is the difference between a development professional and a fundraiser.
3: Um, That's right. And
2: helping organizations understand developing relationships, nurturing relationships, building for the long term is a very different concept than bring me the money um, and right. and where that money comes from and honoring and respecting donors, I think is at the heart of of this this uh crossroads it 's not so much the professional because I think there is very good training. You and I provide a lot of training each year. Um, There are plenty of outlets to draw attention, but organizations and their almost insatiable need for money, um, not understanding the value of that money to the donors and the transparent impact that they're looking to have, um, I think will be at the peril of those organizations and, and I hope not the peril. Uh, of our profession so we're going to take a, a very quick break and when you come back i'm, I'm actually going to uh, challenge you and intrigue you um, when we come back from the break i am going to ask you to reflect um, on the year 1751 uh, and i'm going to leave that with you uh, and we will be right back <laughs>
0: Life gets busy. Wouldn't it be nice to have a central place where you could save what's on your mind? With Google Keep, you can stay on top of your world by quickly and easily organizing everything you want to remember, no matter where you are. Finalize door list for Thursday's gig. So when you find inspiration, you can file away your ideas. And Google Keep stores them safely across all your devices. And when the time comes, you'll have everything covered. Save what's on your mind. Google Keep. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on Radio Links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart.
2: And we're back here live. Just a program note, uh, this is our last show, the Case Sprinkle Grace Show, here on The Nonprofit Coach uh, for 2014. We start and back from our holiday hiatus on January 20th when we will have Clint O'Brien with us. Uh, and he is going to help us sort out uh, what trends we are seeing in the way the charities raise money and how you can maximize uh, those trends. And so we're live here with uh, Kay Sprinkle-Grace. And Kay, I, I I, I sort of left us hanging there with the year yes, 1751. Not because either one of us know the year 1751.
1: I don't uh, but think I, I know that one.
2: <laughs> I wanted to share this with you because I'm, I'm in the process of of reading uh, the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. Uh, And in his autobiography, there is a notation that I wanted you to at this point of holiday uh, to, uh, to reflect on. So give me just a second to read this uh, to you. So he's talking about, he starts off by talking about uh, the fundraising for uh, the new hospital in Philadelphia. And at that same time, Another project came to him through the Reverend Gilbert Tennant, um, and he was asking for Benjamin Franklin's assistance in procuring funds for erecting a new meeting house. It was to be for the use of congregations uh, that gathered um, uh, for a particular religious sect who originally were disciples of a preacher that Benjamin Franklin rather liked. He said that he was unwilling to make himself uh, uh, himself uh, part of the soliciting of the funds, uh, he absolutely refused to do that because this person asked him uh, if he would furnish him with a list of names of people that he knew would, if Benjamin Franklin would know, to be generous and public spirited. I thought it would. Uh, Benjamin Franklin says he quotes, "I thought it would be unbecoming in me after their kind compliance with my other solicitations to mark them out." To be worried about other beggars and therefore refused to give (laughs) such a list. He then desired, and I would, if I would then give him advice. That I will readily do, said I. And in the first place, so here's where the advice comes in. I advise to you, so this is Benjamin Franklin speaking to all of us from 1751. I advise (laughs) to you to apply to all of those whom you know will give something. Next, To those whom you are uncertain whether they will give a thing or not, show them the list of those who have given. And lastly, do not neglect those who you are sure will give nothing, for in some of them you will be mistaken.
1: Ah, That's brilliant advice, isn't it? I mean, isn't that how we do our business today?
2: So I thought that when as I'm reading this autobiography of Benjamin Franklin uh as modern as we all feel that we are and right. as a profession as we come together is is that not the rallying cry of focus on the donor not focus Absolutely. on the money
1: Absolutely. That's right. And it is about focusing on the donor and we um we really uh have we lose sight of that. And, I mean, I you've heard me tell stories in seminars about just devastating stories of really fine professionals who have ended up leaving their jobs because they were basically, I I don't want to say punished, but let's just say they were not rewarded for the relationship building that they did. And a number of years ago, I spoke at the Big Ten Development Conference, and they had uh, edu, edu, what? ever it is the assessment organization that works with um, major universities they had surveyed the people who were coming to see what their satisfaction was in their jobs and the the pressure to raise money at the cost of building relationships was very evident in the data and not only that they said that the thing they want to spend more time on is stewardship which is the ongoing relationship with the donor after the gift has been made. And yet there is no reward for that. There's nothing built into plans. And I, I'm really delighted when I am asked by a client that is, say, hiring a new major gifts officer or a new uh, director of development, when they say, you know, by what, in what period of time should we expect financial results? And I'll say, you know, that's not the entirety of your measure. I said, yes, I said, by the end of a year, you should see a rise in this. But I said, you've got to set up how many people they've gone out and visited, how many board members they've sat down with to get to know, uh, how much time they've spent going over the donor list, so they begin to familiarize themselves with the profile of a donor, so that when the donor calls, they can have an intelligent conversation. I said, but we too quickly plunge people into just raising the money because people think of us as fundraisers. So how do we how do we get around that? Well. I think we have to speak up. I think that part of the reason that I worry about this revolution is that I'm not sure that we're speaking up. And I think part of that was the recession when a lot of jobs were very fragile and we didn't speak up. And it wasn't just in our sector. I have a a grandniece who works for one of the big, you know, Silicon Valley companies. She was lucky enough to get a job after she graduated from college but she was still on an hourly wage and had been promoted three times. She was afraid to say, you know, I don't think I should be hourly. I think I should also get benefits now. I've been here three and a half years and you've promoted me three times. And they just kind of looked at her like, what? Like, why would you want to be anything but hourly? So we have an education job to do in our sector as well. I believe in our sector more than anything, any other sector, as having the capacity still as it was in the original, and you've been citing Benjamin Franklin. We, several people cited, of course, Alexis de Tocqueville yesterday, and the fact that in 1830, he said these Americans are the most peculiar people. You know, they see a problem in their community. They form a committee. They solve the problem, all without benefit of bureaucracy. In other words, we have that initiative, but it's about building community. And I think the big point that Andrew Watt made yesterday that I really cherished was that our primary job is community engagement. And if we can engage community, then our board reflects it. Our board reflects an engaged community. We look at the work that say United Way and others are doing in this whole area of collective impact. I was speaking about how Goodwill and other organizations are looking at a triple bottom line, you know, the human capital becomes the third bottom line, what human capital are you creating, not only with the impact of your work, but by the engagement of your community, but if we're always, you know, focused only on the money, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't focus on the money, because after all, that's what we need to do, but There is everything, all the data tell us that, in fact, the more engaged somebody becomes, the more they give. They handed out a a study yesterday at the fundraising school meeting that showed what we all know, that when people volunteer and are engaged, their giving just goes straight up, just straight up. And that very we
2: we all issues. know this uh, but but I think part of the the issue that that we always struggle with is you know we we know these truths, we know engaging donors we we know uh being transparent and impactful, and all of these things that that are um approaches to making certain that the donor is valued for the money that they are giving voluntarily, and yet so many administrations. Uh, view and then the stress rolls to the the fundraising professional, whoever is in that seat, um, that it is just about counting the money. And my my concern is um if if you had a chance to listen to uh, last week's show that um vast majority of the the money um that is given in this country um, is given to the top 1% of charities. So, That's right. so we talk about Absolutely. top 1% of, of wealthy. So 99% of the charities out there are currently fighting for or jockeying about um, 30% of the money. Um, That's right. And so, And I think that part of that story is the larger institutions who engaged those who understood relationships – and did not become transactional to just counting the money, are those who have maintained that longstanding tradition of good donor relations.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because what happens, when you take care of your donors, when tough times come, the donor would not will not let you down because you have made them feel like a partner. I mean, I call... I call donors partners for positive change. That's, to me, what our donors are. And once we view them as partners and we are more transparent, we are much more apt to engage them in problem solving, they are kind of outside in this ring of donors around a thriving core. We tend to tell them what we want to tell them, not what we should be telling them, but if they are partners, then I believe that they would say, oh my goodness, I mean, we've got to keep this organization strong. I mean, why does an institution like Stanford University, how is it able to raise $6.3 billion between 2008 and 2013? It's because they never whined. They never said they were needy. They're not needy. What they said was there are huge opportunities out there, and they went back to people who were such loyal supporters and said, will you partner with us for the environment, for education? But there was also that trust
2: factor of being transparent and actually being able to fulfill the commitments that they made for the money that they raised. So it wasn't just give me money and I promise something good will happen, but the, the transparency of actually being able to produce um, what is expected when the money is given
1: that's right, that's right, and also being able to go back to those donors, see what I am always appalled and and I know that others of you who are listening have experienced this too, if you're consultants, when you say, "Oh, and what kind of follow up did you do?" Oh well, we haven't had time. You haven't had time to tell four hundred people who came to an event and helped you raise a half a million dollars net. You haven't had time to tell them about the success and about their partnership role in it?
2: Well, because the the, the follow up is another solicitation rather than you know, it it, it it's interesting to me because you you raise this as a as a very important and serious uh topic, is that stewardship and transparency in reporting uh, is seen as a luxury of time, as as opposed to an absolute requirement before you ask for another dime.
1: That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And it is. And I'm
2: not sure that in in the training overall or in the discussions uh, at conferences that that is presented in quite that way. And 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 I really feel that it's a weakness in the approach because so much of the training and the conference time is spent on the mechanics of the ask um as opposed to um
1: exactly. understanding
2: what you must do uh for the relationship.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it is it's all right in front of us Ted. It's all right in front of us. We know intuitively what we need to do. And in terms of our stress level, I think a lot of it could be handled if we would be proud of our professionalism and understand that even the person we work for most of the time may not be familiar with what development is about. They get fundraising, but they don't get development development precedes fundraising, as we know. And this is what we're not being given an opportunity to do. This is what is causing the stress in our sector. It worries me. It worries me when I see people and I say, how are you? This will be a development director, a fabulous development director, who looked at me the other day and she said, fried. Fried. That was her word to describe herself. And it's not just here. I work a lot in Australia, as you know, and they have a word for burned out people, and it's cinder. (laughs) How are you today? I'm a cinder. I'm burned out. (laughs) We cannot afford in this country, which is the absolute still. I mean, Andrew Watt was pressed yesterday to say, you know, where else do you have this 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 engagement of the community in philanthropy. And he said there is nowhere else like the US and Canada. There is nowhere else. So here's the irony, is that because we have this amazingly successful model that engages our donors, that has the idea of partnering with institutions to solve community problems or enrich communities, it makes our jobs a bigger job. Whereas in Central and Eastern Europe where I work a lot and in other places where I don't work so much but I do visit and meet people, their jobs, Ted, are really fundraising because they don't have this larger view. But until they get the larger view, they will never grow their philanthropy.
2: Exactly. Well, Kay, I want to thank you. We have one minute left, uh, so please uh, tell our listeners today. It's uh, unbelievable how fast the time goes, but you are so fascinating and bring so much. How can our listeners reach you?
1: They can reach me at kgrace.org on my website or at ksprinklegrace, and sprinkle is E-L, not L-E, ksprinklegrace at AOL.com
2: the best name in fundraising. I love Kay Sprinkle Grace, your name and your person, and the wonderful work that you do around the world. Thank you for gracing us again in our final show for 2014, making our holiday show always the most popular show of the year. I look forward to having you back next year. This is the Nonprofit Coach signing off for 2014. We will be back on January 20th, coming back from our holiday hiatus with Clint O'Brien on The Nonprofit Coach. Have a wonderful, wonderful holiday.
0: You've been listening to The Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach.